0: Welcome everybody, Um, I just can't help but point out that last year I actually spoke with Rabbi Liebteg as well, and um, I don't know if any of you were here, but I actually started by mentioning that um, I had spoken to my mother beforehand and told her, um, oh, with Rabbi Liebteg it's probably going to be a big crowd, and she had told me, don't worry, everybody will leave, (laughs) but this year I actually have you cornered because we switched. 9.30 9:30, Rabbi was supposed to be Rabbi tech and now you're stuck with me for an hour before he comes. So, I hope it's worth your while. Can I, can I hold this? Perfect. When I hold it, okay, good. For me, definitely with the height issue. Okay, um, so let's get started. We're going to talk about an issue that's relevant to last week's parsha and this and this coming week's parsha as well. And the truth is, every time I read through the Parshiot of Lech Lecha and Vayera, I'm bothered by the story of Hagar and Yishmael. And even the truth is, last this Peshavah, I had the rare opportunity of being in shul for a Torah reading, and again, (laughs) same thing. Um, And the story is really fascinating and very disturbing, because to me, who better represents Jewish leadership and Jewish values than Abraham and Sarah? Hagar and Ishmael, at least in my mind, fall in that category of kind of negative characters in Tanakh. Yet, in the interactions between these two pairs, you, you have to ask yourself, who really are the victims? Is it Sarah and Abraham at the hands of Hagar and Ishmael? Or on the flip side, Hagar and Ishmael at the hands of Sarah and Abraham? So in order to really effectively answer this question... Um, let's explore the narratives of Hagar and Yishmael and Tanakh and see what we come up with. Um, We're we'll first introduced to Hagar and Parshat Lechlothah. In the chapter right before we meet Hagar, let me give you a little context, I don't think this is in the source sheets. Um, Abram is very concerned about his continuity. And he says to, he says to Hashem, this is in Bereshit, if anyone happens to have a Tanakh, he says, Vayomer Abram, Hashem el Hukim, Ma'titanli, Va'anoki what are you going to give me, God? I have no continuity. As much as I accomplish now, what about my future? Uben mesek beti Eliezer. My only hope is the person in charge of my house, Eliezer. That's not really it's not what I'm expecting in terms of a successor. So, by Abram, li lo zera. ben beti, Again, my only prospect for an heir right now seems to be my servant, Eliezer. I was hoping for a child. And Hashem answers, No, it will not be Eliezer who's going to succeed you. It's going to be a child that will descend from you. Even then, Abraham still has doubts. A few psukim later, he says, How do I know that this is going to happen? And how do I know that I will inherit all of this? And Hashem ends up reassuring him with the Brit Bain Habitarim. Now, note here, which we'll keep in mind as we're reading the next few psukim, Hashem gives no indication that this child will biologically come from Sarah. And he simply says, Abraham, you will have a child. Abraham and Sarah alike do not know that this child will be hers. Okay, now, in the very next parak, at Sarah's initiative, we meet Hagar. So if you take a look, I think this is probably the first in your sources. Okay, so this is Bereshit Parak Tetzayim. We're going to read the first three psukim. Um, V'sarai eshet Avram, lo yaldalo, v'la shifcha mitzri, u'shma hagar. So right away we have a contrast. Sarah, on the one hand, has no children, but she does have this Egyptian maidservant, Hagar. Vatomar sarai el-Avram, hinei na atzrani Hashem b'ona el-shifchati, u'lay ibanem so Sarai turns to Abram and says, Hashem has stopped me from having children. For some reason, Hashem has, um, meaning really she sees that Hashem is involved in this process. Co instead, you know, have relations with my maidservant. Maybe I, a very strange language, maybe I will be built up through her. And Abram listens to the voice of Sarah. So, buti kach sarai eishad abram etagar hamitzri kshivpatam miket esher shanim la shevet abram be eretz So, abram in fact does this. It's ten years after they arrived in eretz kanan. Buti ota la abram isha lo le isha. So, she gave her to abram her husband as a wife. Okay, so the, the, know right away that Hagar is coming into the family is really at Sarah's initiative, and it forces the question of what is really Sarah's purpose in giving Hagar to Abraham. We know that the initiative is the fact that Abraham has no children or descendants, but from Sarah's end, what is her, what is she hoping for? And the truth is, there's a real diversity among the Parshanim about what Sarah was looking for. So, if you take a look at the next. Um, Stop me if it's not in your source sheet because I'm just using my original source sheet. Um, But if you take a look at the next, I think it should be the next two sources Um, after the text of the Tanakh it's, um, you see Radak and Rashi Okay, so take a look at the Radak for a minute. We'll start there and let's see what the Radak says The Radak says We know that she didn't have any children Ritsonolomar so once she saw the situation that she wasn't having any children he was 85 she was 75 this is not a you know a new young married couple she doesn't have any more hope she gives up hope that she will be the mother of of Abraham's heir. Amra, she said, You know, remember, Abraham and Sarah, they work together. She knows that Hashem promised Abraham that he will have a child that's going to continue. He's going to inherit the land, take on the spiritual legacy. It's not going to happen It's not going to happen for me. So Sarah is resigned to the fact that this child is not going to come from her. So she decides, kivni, So, given that it's not going to be from me, my best possible situation for involvement with the child is if I give my child, my maid servant to Abraham, then that child will be as if it's my child. Yes, I will not carry and deliver that child, but I will raise that child and it will be considered as if it's my child. Okay, so this is the intentions according to uh, the Radak and I would say one school of thought. She was hoping to give that, um, to have, to raise that child. That child will be considered hers. Okay, take a look at Rashi for a minute, right underneath. Rashi says, Ibanevimena, in the merit that I will bring a co-wife into my house. What did you say? Sarati is usually used in the language of co-wife, yes. And it, it's a very interesting language because no, Sarah, right? It's like a the problem, it's something that you don't want. So um and the truth is in Tanakh it's never a good situation, right? Do we have a good example of good co wives? So um exactly. So in the school, let's finish the sentence, in the merit that I will bring a co wife into my house and I always say when I read this, thank God I wasn't born then and uh, um anyway, in the good that I bring a co wife into my house, maybe I myself will merit to still have children. So it's a little bit unclear if Sarah herself is hoping that she will be able to continue to have that child or if she's really given up hope and said, listen, let Hagar have a child and I'll raise this child. Um, you know, it's interesting just in terms of, you know, just looking at the modern day, sometimes you see that um, um, a couple that's really struggling to have a child, sometimes when, after they adopt a child, then the um, the woman becomes pregnant. So maybe there was something to that also, just that she... She felt like she had to take some initiative, but unclear if the initiative meant that she gave up hope of, she, of herself biologically bearing that child. So, so Sarah brings Hagar into her house and um, with one of these two um, intentions. Now, interestingly, if you look, um, I think you, do have, you probably have the Ramban next, right? You skip the Ramban for a minute, and you have Beresha Lamid. Okay, we have a very in- similar situation with two other co-wives who also have a lot of... Problems, although certainly I'm not comparing um, the status maybe of Hagar and Sarah to Rachel and Leah. But here we have a similar situation with Rachel. Take a look inside for a minute. So Rachel realizes that she's not having children for Yaakov, and she becomes jealous of her sister Leah, who just seems to be having child after child. Batomer el Yaqob, Havaliban behim Ian Meta Anobi. Give me children, or else I'm like it's like I'm dead. Baharaf Yakobirafel, Bayomer Ataka Del Himanobi, Ashirmanami meh prebeten. Am Amay instead of Yaqob gets angry? You think I'm God? It's God who's taking the children away from you. Don't turn this on me. You could have a whole shear right now on these two tsukin, but uh, we'll continue. Butomar, um Batomer, he ne amati filha. So notice how the language is really the same, right? I'll give, take Bilha instead, and Ibaneh, just like Sarah, I will be built up, and I will raise this child. And what in fact happens, Again, the same language, gives Bilha. As a wife, although we'll have to question that definition. Vayavo ala, he had his relations with her. Yaakov batahar she becomes pregnant. Vateila Yaakov ben. V'tomer Rachel, Danani Elokim um, v'gam shama b'poli v'yitain li ben al kein karashimodan. So notice that Rafael considers this Hashem gave me the child. There's no assumption here in the text that the child is Bilhah, the child is Rachel. And you see that also by the naming. Naming signifies ownership, right? She names the child, it's her child. And again, vatahar od, vatele, Bilhah, shivchat, Rachel, ben sheini, And again, Rachel names the child and takes ownership of the child. So we have some, some a very similar Rachel maybe mimicking You know, Rachel is mimicking what Sarah did when she was in that similar situation, Um, and you see there also that there is this idea that even if the maidservant has the child, the child is really raised by the um, is is raised by the by the main wife, Um, and the biggest proof of that is also that the children become the shvatim. Billah's children are not different. Okay, now, uh, interestingly also, in the ancient Near Eastern codes, such as the Code of Hammurabi and others, demonstrate that th- it was a common practice of the time, that when a woman couldn't have a child, the way that she achieved this was by giving her maidservant to her husband. And with Hagar, though, as opposed to Rachel, there is some type of an ambiguity about her status. What is the status of Hagar? Right. And we saw that pasuk before by Yitin Lo, um, if you look back for a minute at Pesach right, we said, um, So the Pesach seems to go out of its way in the beginning to say that she is the maidservant. She gives her as a wife. Now, we did see the same language with Bilhah. But at the same time, there's some type of an ambiguity here, which we see later from the Hagar story. What is Hagar's status? Is she going to be just as before, and now she's serving a different purpose as well, which is to have a child that's will raise, Or has there been a change in Hagar's status? Now, if you look at that Ramban that we skipped before, the Ramban addresses that issue. Um, and I think we can go different ways on this. Let's just look how the Ramban deals with this. Um, if you skip, let's start, um, Okay, let we'll read the whole it's easier to read the whole thing. Um, the Rabban says, Amar davar So the Rabban points out that again this is Sarah's initiative. Abram didn't suggest it until she did something. And then it says, right, Why does it keep telling us everybody's everyone's status that Sarah is the wife of Abraham and Abram is her husband? The most, the hint, Ki lohit Yasha me Abraham, and so this is different than what we saw before in the Radak, that Sarah didn't give up hope in Abraham, in, in being the bearer of Abraham's child. The loherfita atzma me etzlo, and she continues to function as his wife in the hopes that she in fact will bear this child. Ki he ishto they're still married. Aval hagar ishto, she wants to add Hagar. The lady but why do you say that she gave Hagar as a wife, almost acquainting her with Sarah? Sarah actually intended, this is according to the Rabban, you know, and you know, this is, as um, I, I said, go both ways on this, but according to the Rabban, Sarah really did not intend for Hagar to be at the status of Kipilagash anymore. Wrapped to suwa'lo, as in a real married wife, you know, like Raphael and like a situation. V'kolzam u'sar Sara heget the and all this shows Sara's really positive characteristics. Um, okay, you no, know, let me just hold, if you don't mind, the questions until the end, and then we'll come back. Okay, so this is, and as I said, you could read this different ways. Was Sarah really intending this? But according to the Ramban, he uses those words in order to say that Sarah really did have certain intentions of elevating Hagar's status. Okay, let's move on to the first incident. What, what happens here? So if you take a look at, um, let's go back to the text itself. Look at, at Pasad Dalit. So, so what happens once Sarah um, gives Hagar to her husband? Okay, so take a look at Pasuk by Ba Hagar He right away Hagar becomes pregnant. Ki as soon as she sees that she's pregnant, her, her mistress becomes light in her eyes. She doesn't respect her in the same way. But Tomar Sarai El Avram, so Sarah turns to Avram, and it's just interesting how it's very, it really just continues to be very parallel with the raphael Yaakov relationship here. Um, and she says <laughs> I'm angry at you <laughs> so she says to Abraham, I'm angry at you I gave my maidservant to you. you and once she saw that she was pregnant she treats me she, she, I'm light in her eyes God should judge between me and you so clearly she feels that in some way Abraham is culpable here for the situation so Abraham says, "Veomer Abraham al Sarah, hinei shiv chatech liatech. She's in your hands. Hasi lahatov beinayef. It's your, it's your decision what to do. Vataanes Sarah. Sarah, um, we're going to come back to how to translate that. But for now, let's say, oppress. Sarah oppresses um Hagar. Vativ rakhmi panah. Hagar runs away. So what? Very veimteh malach Hashem al ein mayim b'nebar al haayin b'derachshur. A malach finds her." So we have another one of these um, rhetorical questions that you often find in Tanakh. Where are you coming from and where are you going? The Malach knows where where Hagar is going. But like, um, someone actually just pointed this out to you, like the other, um, when Hashem says to um, Adam, when right, he said, Ayaka, um, and to Cain and Havel, right? Havel here also, where are you going where are you coming from and where are you going? And he wants her to reflect. And um, Hagar says, <speaking in> But <Hebrew> your I'm sorry, my mistress, I know and the Malach says, <speaking in Hebrew> return to her, to your to your to your to your mistress, <speaking in Hebrew> be oppressed under her hands." And again, the Malach continues, right, you're also going to have many children, who won't be counted. And again, the Malach a third time says, Vayomer Hashem, You'll have a child and you'll call his name Yishmael. Why? Anyev. God has heard your suffering. Okay, and she continues to give this prophecy, Huyeh para Adam, he's going to be um, someone let's say, free or wild in nature, etc. She continues to go on. Um, ultimately, Hagar returns. In Tedva, vatelel Hagar Abram. Ben, she has a child. Va'ikra beno asher Hagar Ishmael He calls the child Gishmael. Um, and Avram is 86 years old when Hagar has a child for Abraham. Okay, so what do we do with Sarah's actions here? And this has been a subject of much debate among the Pashanim. So let's look at some different schools of thought here. Um, take a look first at the Ramban. And that should be under where it says the expulsion of Hagar. So what does the Ramban say? Sarai so The Ramban says, Actually, our mother, Sarai, sinned here with this oppression. V'gam Avraham Also Avraham, when he allowed her to do this. V'shamah Hashem ben kera adam. So because Sarah sinned, and Abraham, in allowing his wife to do this, because of that, Hashem heard her, hurt Hagar's pain, and he gave her a child that would continue to oppress the Jewish Abraham's descendants for ages. Okay. We're not even going to go into this whole uh, Arab thing. Okay, let's go on to the let's go on to the Radak. What does the Radak say? Now interestingly the Radak takes a similar path in being critical of Sarah, but you'll note as we read it that there are differences. It doesn't really say the same thing. Okay, so the Radak says, <laughs> he, she did more than she should have with her. Meaning she yeah.
1: You know what? I think it's
0: not bolded. Do you see under the two lines? Okay, good. But please stop me if I'm using my original source sheet. So if you don't see it, please stop me. Okay, so we had actually a very harsh word here. The parach we usually associate with um, the shibud mitrayim. So somehow Sarah worked her, we usually translate it as backbreaking work. So Sarah did more, she treated her, and gave her harsher or more difficult work than she should have. Maybe she even hit her. And cursed her. So she couldn't handle it, and she ran away. And Sarah didn't do, she didn't follow the ways of, how do you translate Musar? Just the proper... Ethical behavior, thank you. And lo midah chasidut. Chasidut is actually usually like something that we talk about for The name What do you say? Compassion, piety. So you could see already that it's, very, it's a different path than the Ramban. The Ramban says blatant straight out chay. And the Radak says she could have done, maybe she was allowed, but she shouldn't have. She wasn't midah, nusar or chasidut. But in both cases, sarah was not, it was in, It was inappropriate. Um Lomusar Ki Apa Pisha Abra Asila Hayara Oila So why was it not Musar? Because for Avram's Kabod, even though he allowed her to do what she wanted, she should have held back. So um, this is one of my favorite parts of this radak that he says in general, just for chassid, you don't always have to do everything that you're allowed to do. A very, I think, a very true statement. So he says Amar ha-chacham. Right, so what is um what is the Chacham say? Who's the Chacham? So the Chacham is actually Rav Shlomo Ibn Gabirol, who was a Spanish poet and philosopher who lived in the times of the Ibn Ezra. So he quotes him and he says, Uman Mechila How great is forgiveness? Even when one can not, when there's room legally, let's say, to to do more, what really is praiseworthy is holding back when you can. Um, it wasn't right in the eyes of God. So he's basing himself, um, also, and the Ramban as well, on this passage, Hashem has heard your pain, your suffering. Right? That implies that there was undue. Pain. There was pain that should not have been felt. Of the you suffered. Now you'll be blessed. So Abram, even though he what, what was going on, he didn't approve of. Shalom bayis is important, and you see, it's interesting. It's another just interesting trend that you see sometimes in the parshanim in talking about how far the avot bent over. And Abram, I think, specifically, in some other cases, that how far the Avot went uh, for Shalom bias. Um, actually, yeah. Hashem is also cares about Shalom bias. He changes the language, right? When um, Sarah says that Abram is old, Hashem changes the language for Shalom bias. So it really is an extremely important value. Okay, so the purpose is for us to learn from it, and whether it's positive or negative, what comes out of it, we learn from the struggles of very righteous people um, in terms of how to deal with our own struggles. Okay, so And this was this is one path of dealing with Sarah's approach with Hagar, and actually Nechama Leibowitz d- discusses these sources, adopts this approach, and she, d- she actually has a nice psychological analysis there where she does discusses that sometimes at first, one has very. Um, she, she discusses how at first Sarah had very good intentions in giving Hagar, and we saw that in the Ramban. Remember, it was Musar of Sarah, but she took on something that was too much for her. You know, so initially, um, she did the right. You know, initially she she had positive motivations, and she hoped that she'd be able to handle having the tzara, Tsarati tzaratibaveti. But it was. But she discusses how sometimes a challenge, you know, we try to do it, but it becomes too much. And it's just interesting, this I, this I do think about all the time. Um, had a, I was talking to a friend recently about um, a situation that she had where somebody asked her to do a favor that she felt like it was the right thing to do, but it seemed like such an overwhelming favor. It was like a, a long-term house guest, and um, she, we, when we were discussing it, we said, well, is this like a Sarah-Hagar situation? Like, it's kind of the right thing to do, but maybe in the end I'll resent it so much that, uh, you know, negative can come out of it. So this is the way Nechama Leibowitz goes along with this. And according to these approaches, Sarah's behavior, whether midahadin or from lichnim from is inappropriate. Now, one problem, one textual issue that you can raise with about this approach is um, if Sarah is wrong, Right and Hagar was unduly oppressed. Then why did the Malach tell Hagar to go back? Why should she go back if if Zaret oppressed her, Abudaktera, and that wasn't appropriate? Then why did the Malach tell her right away to go back? Right, it's not that you can't answer this from the you know the Radak and the Ramban perspective, but it certainly is a, a question that um, um, questioning this approach. So I want to just present to you a different school of thought um, how to deal with this and. Um, this school of thought has been written up, um, I think it's Nahum Sarna, talks about this extensively, um, Rav Stamet discusses this, I think Dr. Gabi Cohn is working on a book about this, but this, the second approach is one that you can apply to many different stories in Tanakh, which is that what we have to do is take a step back, that we're applying our framework to a story that happened thousands of years ago, and maybe there were different norms then that we're not, we personally are not living with, but we're Appropriate at that time. So let's take a look. Um, let's take a look at the Code of Hammurabi, which follows. Um, I think it should follow that Radak. Okay, so how does the the Code of Hammurabi is really the best preserved ancient law code that dates back 1760 BCE in ancient Babylon. It's written by Hammurabi, the sixth Babylonian king, and it was discovered, interestingly, in Iran in 1901. I'm sure many of you have seen it in the Louvre. Um, So how do you apply this? um, How do we apply? Let's try to apply the Code of Hammurabi to what's going on here. Okay, so take a look at the Code of Hammurabi. There's two laws here, 145 and 146. So if a man takes a wife and she bears him no children, and he intended to take another wife, if he takes the second wife and bring her into the house, the second wife shall not be allowed equality with his wife. Okay, now take a look at 146. If a man take a wife and she give this man a servant as a wife, and she bear him children, and then this maid assume equality with the wife because she is born in children, her master shall not sell her for money. She may mark her with the slave mark and count her among the slaves. Okay, so a very interesting and parallel situation to what's going on here. We mentioned before, it was common practice if a woman couldn't have children to give her maidservant. What did you say? 1760 BCE. So this is, we're going back really to this, to this time period. Um, now it was common practice, but this maidservant was not supposed to assume equality with the wife. And if she did, she was to be disciplined. Okay, and now how was she disciplined? Here, um, you can't sell her out because she's carrying the master's child. What do you do? She gets a slave line. Basically, that's putting her in her place. Don't think that you're just like at first wife you're, You still are a Shippah. This is still your place. So she's put in her place in order to respond to her newfound arrogance. Now, how can we apply this to Sarah and Hagar? Right? Maybe what happened was, right? Hagar, initi- Hagar initiated a new status. She was, you know, she took a certain pride in I will be the bearer of this child. And what Sarah was doing was putting her back in her place. Does vataanes Sarai also have to mean that Sarah oppressed her? Maybe vataanes Sarai could mean that Sarah did things that showed her her status, what it really was. Let me just give you two examples, other places where this word comes up in Tanakh. Um, so one case is in the case of the ger, right? We have a, um, a prohibition that we're not supposed to oppress or lo ta'anet et Now, what does that mean? Does it mean physical oppression? Or does it also mean making them feel like second class citizens, right? Both are possible. Um, another case, the other famous case, right, inoi um, is mitzrayim, right? Now, mitzrayim, we certainly suffered physical hardships. At the same time, part of what we suffered was our status as slaves. So this word inoi is is, is an, a little bit of an open word, right? There are different ways. There's not one clear. You know, we jump to the word oppression, but what does oppression mean? Is oppression physical? Is oppression emotional? What the Code of Hammurabi means is also are certain types of oppression in certain societies, sometimes legitimate, right? If we're interpreting this in our society, then we might, you know, maybe weigh in. no, but we don't have this situation, um, again, thankfully. But um, it's a difference, it's a very different, sometimes we're applying our context to something that happened thousands of years ago with different norms, it plays out differently. Okay, so if you don't mind, I'm just gonna hold the questions for the end. Okay, so let's continue. I just want to make sure that we get to all of our sources. Um, let's reread the story for a minute with this in mind. Take a look back at the, at the, at the words of the story, back to Reishah Tzayin. Notice how there's such a stress on the, I guess the fancy term for it is the relational epithets, but it's what the people are called, when we already know what their status is. But there's a real emphasis. If you look back from it. the Sarai, Eishet Avram, the wife of Avram, the Lohyadalo, Lohyadalo, Shifkondesrit, Ushmahagar, Batomar Sarai El Avram, etc., Bo El Shifkati, come to my maidservant. She doesn't even say her name. And interestingly, she never says her name. She always calls her Shivhati. And Avram listens. Passup Gimel, Batikach Sarai, Avram. This is the wife of Avram. This is our difficult pasuk. El right? Total extraneous language, but it's emphasizing the situation. So now here notice this is the first time that Hagar is mentioned and not called the maid servant. So maybe with her pregnancy she is it, it she feels like she has a new status. Now, who feels that Hagar has a new status? Is it um, she herself? Or is, is it Abraham as well? Right, Especially in light of the promises that Hashem gave the that he's going to have an heir, this follows would, and he doesn't know that this heir is going to be a child of Sarah. Hagar, you know, maybe there is some type of new status for Hagar, right? That would certainly explain okay where Sarah is so angry at Abraham, right? She says, I don't know. This is, you know, all conjecture, but maybe the is because Abraham may have conferred or went along with Hagar's new status. Um, again, so again, Abram in also take the maidservant. He validates Sarah. It's not, you're right, she's the maidservant. I'm not giving her that status as my wife. And now look for a minute at Pasachet, where the Malach confronts Hagar. yomer this is what he calls her. He says, "Hagar shifat Sarai." Hagar, servant of Sarai. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? And she says, "Mipne Sarai givirti anochi porachad." I'm running away from Sarah, my mistress. And then he says, "Byomer Hashem al Go back to your mistress. So certainly the the Relational epithets here or what the people are called seems to be pointing that there is this status question, and this is what's being called into question. Right? If you want to go with this ancient Near Eastern route of the code of applying the code of Hammurabi, it could be that the malafa is saying, listen, go back, because that's what happens. You took too much power for yourself. You elevated yourself in an inappropriate way. Now go back to Sana and the A shifa, because that's what you're supposed to be. You're not supposed to be an actual real co-wife. So there's there's really different ways to um, to go through to look at this story. And in this case, according to this, Sarah really may not have behaved inappropriately. Maybe she really was legitimately putting Hagar back in her place. Um, At the same time, the truth is we could still apply the criticism of Nechama Leibowitz and the Radak, because part of the question is, do we always go, that was really the question that the Radak raised, do we always go according to the letter of the law, or does the Torah, demand? you know, or is, or is the Torah trying to bring out that sometimes, you know, we need to go above, that one needs to go, and, and Sarah here may be held accountable in either case for not going according to the letter of the law. But certainly this raises the question that this may have really been the norms, and the Enoi does not necessarily have to be the avodah of perach or the Enoi of the radah, but it could also be some type of um, treatment that showed Hagar who she was. Okay, so let's take a look. With this in mind, let's move forward to the expulsion of, of Ishmael and Hagar. Now, something very important has happened between the two between these two leavings, between Hagar leaving of her own initiative and Ishmael being kicked out. Because we have to read the source, um, Yitzchak has been born and we need to read the sources with this in mind because the issue really here is revolving around Yitzhak and so take a, look at, um, we'll take a look at the sources now I divided it up, I don't know if it's like that yeah, I don't know if it's like that in your sheet but there's really three different sections it's probably not like that in your sheet right? Now, okay so this, this in Beresh of of Aleph the parak really breaks down into three sections Aleph through Zion is about Yitzhak's weaning so we have this very beautiful. I'm sorry, Yitzchak's bridmila. No, I'm sorry, Yitzchak's brit Mila and then he's weaning. So Aleph through Zephet is focusing on real simcha about Yitzchak. Right, Sarah finally has this child. Hashem did as He promised. This child is given a brit Mila and then he's finally weaned. There's a mishter and pasuk Zed abram gadol gamel so the first section of this paragraph is really focused on the Yitzhak promise that's coming true. The, middle sec- the end section of this is the expulsion of Hagar and Ishmael. That stands Yodaled through Khov Aleph. And that is where Avram takes Hagar and Yishmael and sends them away permanently this time. The middle section is the tension between the two. What is this tension? How do we resolve this tension between Yitzhak and Yishmael? So take a look at the psukim there. That's the psukim I want to read first, and then we'll look briefly at the expulsion. Tet through um, Yudbet. So Batira Sarah Ben Hagar HaMitzvit asher Yaudah la'agram mitzah feik. So Sarah sees, now notice again, they we don't call him Ishmael, we call him Ben Hagar HaMitzvit. So she sees that he is mitzah feik. Another um, ambiguous term. Let's leave that mitzah fake for now. Is he laughing? I, I, is he? Well, well, let's leave that till the parsha and deal with it. But she said, but la Abraham she turns to Abraham again. Gareish ha'amah hazod be etbana ki lo yirash ben ha'amah hazod im beni im So kick out this maidservant with her child because this the child of this maidservant is not going to inherit together with my son Yitzchak. Now yirah ha'zamar ma'od be'inay Abraham al tov But Abraham is very upset about Beno his son. This is my son. So Hashem says, no, don't feel bad about it, because anything that Sarah tells you, you should listen to her, because it's Yitzchak who's going to be your continuity. But don't worry, also this child, he's also going to become a, a, a great nation, because he's also is your descendant. Okay, so Hashem weighs in over here. And in response to that, the next passage, Yudal, by Yishkeim Avram bavoker. right, and we could do a whole just for your own interesting parallels here to Akedat Yitzhak where Abram also is Mashkim Um And actually I think Uriel Simon called this Akedat Ishmael. So Abram woke up early in the morning, V'yikach lechem, V'chimat mayim, al-hagar Avram gives them some food and bread, sends them out. They go and they wander. Just briefly, the water runs out. Hagar throws off the sun. She throws the sun away from her. I mean, you know, I'm not going to read this whole thing inside, because I think... um Time-wise, we're getting a little bit close. But essentially, Hagar sends away the child. She can't watch him die. She cries. And then, Hashem hears the cry of the child. I heard the voice of the child where he is. Come, take the child. He's going to become a great nation. He opens her eyes. There's a well. She gives the child to drink. And then at the end of the story, Bayesha the Midbar Paran, Baykaflo Imo Ishami Eretz Mitzrain, Ishmael actually gets married and develops into this this um, this great nation. Now here we don't have the same harshanud about whether Sarah's actions are valid or not, because we can't really argue with Hashem. You know, Hashem weighed in here in the middle. So just so you see an example of that, if you look at the Ibn Ezra, right after the text. Um, there's, I think, the third, karshan, the third parashah is the Ibn Ezra. Right, so wait, Ibn Ezra in pasuk Yudalid, the Ibn Ezra says, "V'Rabbi may Abraham. Many people ask questions here about Abraham. Aiv Pirash Beno, V'Gam Shalach Benim Mo'brim Kam, V'Ayei Midvat Levo. Where is Abraham's kindness? Where is his compassion? He sent out his child. With the maid alone? But the question is really on those who are asking. Abram did, exactly as Hashem told him. And he goes so far as to suggest that even if Abram had given her more money, right, and said, you know what, you're going out alone, let me give you money, that would have been a deviation from what Sarah said. He offers another explanation later and says that, um, no, actually, Abraham maybe did give her more, but if he gave her enough to get there and she got lost, he's not totally comfortable with that explanation. But really, this, this idea of Hashem said, Call us your tamar la fasara, so what can we do? I can't suggest the same thing I said earlier. God waited over here. Um, But despite the validity, the validation of the act by God, what are Sarah's motivations here? Why here is Sarah so adamant about kicking out Ishmael? Okay, so again, a diversity among the Parshani. So take a look for a minute at, um, I think we have here the Rashi, the Rashban, and the Ibn Ezra. We'll see if we have time for the Ramban. So take a look at the Rashi. So what motivated Sarah? So Rashi suggests, Pasuk Teh, Mitzachet. Back to this word, Mitzachet. What was Ishmael doing? Lashon abodizara. Mitzah fake actually means Yishma'o was doing avodazara. So where does he get this? Komosh in Amar. Bayakubu They got up Litzacheik, and that comes from Hotei HaEgel. Okay, Dabar What else could Tishmaa possibly be doing? Lashon Giloy Arayos. Maybe it's um, a language of immorality or promiscuous sexual relations, forbidden sexual relations. Kemad Um, So that's a quote from the Yosef and Hesed Potiphar story, that she said that Yosef um, came essentially to rape me, or to have um, forbidden sexual relationships, a married woman with her. Murder. Where do we get that from? So that's a conversation between Yoav and Avner, the two um, generals of David and Yishbosheth, when they're fighting it out. And what they mean is not that these boys should get up and play in front of us. They mean that they should kill each other. So from these textual sources, Rashi pulls out a whole approach that what motivated Sarah was that she saw that Ishmael was going off into this very, very, it was involved in very, very inappropriate things. And here, and this is not just inappropriate, this is uh, forbidden, big three. Here she has her child, Rash and this child has to be separated from my child. Um, and so in this way, Rashi justifies what seems to be excessive cruelty on Abram's part. Right? And he goes on to say: if you take a look in Yudalith, Alaudopino so Abram also understood um, that he what was, actually, no, here he's saying, what was Abram upset about? Abram was. It's not that Abram was upset that he had to do it, he was upset that he heard that his son was doing these things. But once he heard that, it was clear that the son had to be sent away. Then if, if you continue to see um, in Yudhalid, why did he give her again this question, why did he just give her bread and water and not money so that she could support herself? of the not money and gold. Once he went off um the Daraf, then he Abram had he didn't you know he didn't feel connected to them anymore, or he, I shouldn't say he didn't feel connected, but he didn't want to give him the money anymore. Um, when it says that Hagar wandered, what does that mean? She went back to the Yavodah of her father's house. So Rashi's approach here is really to say that Yishmael violated everything that was um, Abram, the, every one of Avram's principles. So clearly he needed to be sent out and he needed to be separated from Yitzchak. He, the Rashbam takes a totally different approach, and interestingly, the Rashbam, who's Rashi's grandson, often takes a very different approach from Rashi, which just shows his his creativity. Um, so take a look in um, the, the Rashbam, which is right underneath. What is Mitzachek? What's going on? He says Mitzachek sheqfar ba dal You He Ishmael? the Mitzachek. He doesn't go with the, all the sins. The Mitzachek showed that he was already much older. The low hotel she didn't want to wait any longer because maybe if she waits too long Ishmael is going to want to inherit along with Yitzvah right so this is an inheritance issue it's a legal issue. I'm keeping Yitzhaki Karela continuing the Rashbam. So Hashem, when Hashem says he turns to Abraham and he says very finally, Abraham, when I said when I when I said that that your son is going to inherit, I didn't mean Yishmael. I meant Yitzchak. Yitzchak is going to be the one who will inherit, and that's the motivation. It's a legal issue that if she keeps Yishmael around then it's going to be a tension. Who's actually going to inherit Abraham? So here, once Sarah sees that he's grown up, she needs to get rid of him. Now, the Ibn Ezra, interestingly, if you take a look at just the on Pasuk 10, that short line um, that I think is, I'm not sure if it's underlined, if it's not, in the Ibn Ezra on Pasuk 10, he says, Mitzachet, what's Mitzachet? So again, doesn't go with Rashi. Mitzachet is, Kikei min hakol na'ar. This is what teenagers do. They they laugh they have fun. ba'avur he dog So Sarah, when she saw this that he was acting like a teenager, she was jealous because he was older than her son. Now is this going down the Yerusha path, right? That he's older and therefore who's going to inherit? Is it is it just a she was bothered by that, you know, there was like, a very human emotion of jealousy that, like, I wanted to have that first child, and here was my maidservant, who, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm leaving that to, uh, to you to think about. If um, you take a look at the Ramban, just very briefly. What does the Ramban say about Mitzachet? The Ramban says, Right, so he's giving his own parish here it was the day of Yitzchak's weaning and you remember Sarah and Abra made a big party it was really such an event of great joy so Sarah sees she spies. here's Ishmael, he's mocking so what's the mitzachek here she's mocking he's mocking Yitzchak or he's mocking this big party this is what we pointed out before. that that's why she said when Sarah saw Yishmael Mitzachet, it said, Ed ben Hagar, just calling Yishmael. Why? Because it brings back all those associations of just like the son is mocking his master, so too, just like the maid servant, she mocked me. Ishmael is in fact just like his mother, Hagar. If a servant mocks their master, they deserve death, or they deserve at least to be punished in some way. The really she's talking about hitting him. Also back to this inheritance issue. This son cannot inherit with my child. But she sent out the mother. The son can't be alone without his mother. But the essence here of the kicking out was not Hagar, but it was Ishmael who's following in the path of Hagar. So there's a number of different perspectives here of what motivates Sarah. Just to, to review, Rashi, right, Rashi brought in all those chataim, all the sins. The Rashbam brought up a legal Yerusha inheritance issue. Who's going to inherit Aram? This is a very important question. It's not just physical, it's spiritual. The third, the Ibn Ezra, possibly introduced a personal component, the kinah, the jealousy. And now the Ramban is bringing up all these past associations that that Ishmael is now following in the way of Hagar in all the earlier incidents. And this mocking laughter is displaying that he also is the servant who doesn't know his place. Now, why does Hashem agree with Zara here? Why does He validate her actions? So, you know, we really saw two different possibilities. One possibility would be the Rashi approach. Zara's approach is valid. And for the way Shmuel is doing, he deserves it. He's a killer. He's having illicit sexual relations. He's, um, he's. What was our other one about Zara? He's following. In, he's doing idolatry. So clearly, this son needs to be sent out and isolated. The other approach to go with would be the Yerusha approach, right, which the Rashbam introduced, that what Sarah's concern is who is going to inherit Abraham, and now that he's getting older, now that Ishmael is getting older, and Abraham is getting older, right, and Abraham is going to die eventually, who's going to be the one who carries on, and it's still very unclear. Um, so if you take a look at the Code of Hammurabi, it raises those same, those same issues, in, um, this is following what we read before, 170 and 171. He says, If his wife, what happens when the husband, when the, the father dies? And there's two possibilities. There's two sons. Either one that's, um, right, one that's from his main wife and one that was from the maidservant. So here he says, If his wife bears sons to a man, or his maidservant has borne sons, and the father, while still living, says to the children, Whom his maidservant has borne, my sons, And he counts them with the sons of his wife. If then the father die, then the sons of the wife and of the maidservant shall divide the paternal property in common. The son of the wife is to partition and choose. So if the father, if it's not clear in the father's lifetime who's going to be the inheritor, then once the father dies, he's it. This is in Sarah's eyes. This is a very dangerous situation. If it's not clarified, who's towards the table for Adamant? Then who the really is with me? Is it going to be Ypha or is it going to be Ishmael? What'd you say? That okay, but the son of it, I think the son of the wife, though, the main wife, gets first choice. But either way, they're splitting the inheritance. Okay, take a look at 171. If, however, the father, while still living, did not say to the sons of the maidservant, My sons, and then the father dies, then the sons of the maidservant shall not share with the sons of the wife. But the freedom of the maid and her sons shall be granted. So um, if the father doesn't include the sons of the maid servant, and it's clear that they're not considered his sons, then only the son of his real wife is going to take the inheritance. And the son of the wife shall have no right to enslave the sons of the maid, Right? but then this child cannot continue to be enslaved. But what instead? She should be sent away, and they should be... Say that again? Absolutely. So she needed, now in using this approach, by kicking out Ishmael, what Sarah was doing was making it clear that Yitzhak wouldn't be the inheritor, physically, and even much more importantly, religiously. And if this, in Sarah's eyes, if this wasn't done in Abram's lifetime, it becomes much murkier after death. And this is Sarah's way of settling the religious heir of Abraham. And this is the crucial issue throughout the sacred gracious. who is going to be the next? We always read it in hindsight. Of course, it's going to be Yitzchak, but at this time, it was not clear. And the truth is, it was not clear in the eyes of Abraham either. Um, I was actually struck by this at the Torah reading this Shabbos, right? When in, um, I just have wrote bit on this quote to share with you. In in yud Zayim, Abraham says, "When Hashem gives Abraham." The um, prophecy that he's going to have a child he's from Sarah, who's going to be the inheritor. Listen to Abram's language. It's not on your sheet, but Okay, We're going to change Sarah's name. And then he says And you know what? I'm going to bless Sarah, and I'm going to give Sarah a child. And the many of you. And she's going to be the one who's going to have this child who's going to have many nations. So what happens? What does Abram say? Abram says, he says two things. In the next pasuk, first he says, How could Sarah have a child? She's ninety years old. The following pasuk, he says, anyone notice that pasuk? It's a just let Ishmael live. He's still very really focused on the fact that I already have an inheritor. So like Hashem, thank you. I actually put the Radak says there, Lu Yishmael, Klomar, Dai Bemashana Tatali Ishmael. Kika Tonti hagadol hasha taomir shatas Dai bhamashina tatali. Enough, you gave me Yishmael, Hashem. Thank you for this bracha al Yisla, but actually I have Yishmael already. It's not even really necessary. I already have an inheritor. So sorry actions here. Are that much more important because in Abram's eyes it may be very unclear who is actually going to inherit him, Ishmael or Yitzhak. Sarah's initiative may be spurred by this. I need to separate this, chi- this child. Otherwise, once Abram dies, we're going to be in a very unclear situation. Okay, so again, using sometimes using that ancient Near Eastern context, you can see what the what the what she's trying to clarify. Now, just to close, I just want to point out. Um, we saw two events. We saw the initial, I can't even call it, the initial running away of Hagar, right, when she's pregnant. And then later, we saw the expulsion of Hagar and Ishmael. That Ishmael already from I mean that 16. Now, interestingly, this is just something that always struck me, the two incidents are so similar, right? Um, they both, they both um, involve some provocation by Hagar or Ishmael. Sarah both times instigates a kicking out. Abraham goes along with it, but much more passively. Both times it mentions Kol Sarah as the deciding factor. They end up wandering in the desert, and in fact, the very same desert. There's a conversation with Amala, and a promise for the future. Very, very strikingly parallel stories. Um, there are differences as well, right? Um, Abraham uh, the first time Hagar leaves on her own. The second time she's kicked out second time it's Hagar and Ishmael, the second time Hashem makes the decision, and the first time Hagar returns and she does it the second time. But it's just fascinating how the stories are presented as almost like, I, I actually remember when I was reading it, at certain points, getting confused, like, wait, which time it is this? Because they're really, in such a similar way. So I'm kind of throwing out this question to you, which I'll just tell you one approach, but you can think of this through on your own. But why are the stories told in such a similar manner? So I think, the, I think the reason is that you really can't understand each of these stories in isolation. There are two halves of a whole. And Rav Mordechai Breuer suggests something interesting. He says actually that these are both steps of this Yerusha process. And in the first one, um, the goal was to isolate the mother. And the second one, the goal was to isolate the son. Now, the way that I understand this is that it's actually two steps of the Dekhiya process, two steps of pushing away the unqualified or, uh, or the, the wrong heir, right, that um, one happens before the child is actually born, right, if Sarah, if Hagar is pregnant with Ishmael at that time, which is the pshat of the psukim, then there's an initial pushing away of Ishmael when Hagar is pregnant, and then later, once the child is older, form 16, has found his ways, then there's a second pushing away, a final pushing away of the child, but it happens in two stages. One when it's oldest potential, and one after the child has already found his path. Now, in, it's very similar in certain ways to the Yaakov ASAP situation. Rivka right? receives an initial prophecy when she's pregnant. rabbi right? that the older is going to serve the younger. But everything is kind of vague at that point. Only later is it clear that Yaakov is going to be the inheritor and Asaph is pushed away. So it seems that this process of choosing the rightful heir sometimes happens in two stages. And um, in truth, going back to this Yaakov-Asaph situation, we can really compare Sarah and Rivka as well. Both Sarah and Rivka are mothers who are very active in this choosing process. On the fathers, Abraham and Yitzhak remain much more passive. And both stories raise the questions of, say, preparation and Tanakh as a whole, which is human involvement in divine destiny. Now, in both cases, we're clear that the right heir took on the spiritual legacy, right? Yitzhak over Yishmael and Yaakov over Esau. We vote for that one again. But the question from our perspective, from the human perspective, is how involved should one get in this process? And does the end always justify the means? Now, with Rivka, I think this is a very open question. Um, with Sarah, certainly the language in the second case of Kolasha Tamar lechasara seems to validate um, not just the act but also the whole intention. Because otherwise, Hashem wouldn't have had to use her so specifically. In the first case, as we saw, I certainly think it's left more open. Was Sarah going too far in terms of pushing the divine destiny? She was right. Ishmael was the wrong heir. His was the right choice. But how much do we as humans get involved in reading about what we believe is divine destiny? And that question I think is still a question that we struggle with um, today on many, many different levels. We don't have to write prophecy anymore in the same way. But still we struggle with this on many, many different issues. And maybe part of the goal of us going through and analyzing these stories of state preparation is to see paradigms and different models. From those who are so close to Hashem, and seeing both, um, seeing the struggle as well, where they too struggled with, I think, a very relevant issue for our time as well. Okay, I'm sorry, see I went a little bit over time, so I'll take private questions, but I'll give it a break. Thank you.